I think that's a, a very appropriate song as we've been going through this series. Uh, a lot of it is about that surrender to God. It's about understanding what God's will is for us in our lives about how we live and then complying, obeying, following God. Would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the path that you put our feet on and the journey of discipleship. We are yours and we wish to follow you, not only in our minds, but with our lives. Empower us by your Holy Spirit so that we may hear your voice, embrace your call, and obey as we live every day. Reveal yourself today in your word and in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been sitting at the feet of Jesus, so to speak, as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount and listening to his teaching about the kingdom and about what kingdom living looks like. Uh, he was preaching and teaching to a very wide variety of people, people who had been following him for a period of time and also his 12 disciples. And uh, he sat down to teach on the hillside and, and this long, beautiful sermon that just... Um, teaches us so much about who he is, who God is, and how we're to follow just comes out. It's just a wonderful thing. Uh, the teachings are about how to live as Jesus followers. Uh, we're, they were obviously given directly to those people who were sitting there right at that moment, but they're also chock full of principles and lessons for you today if you're listening. If you're listening. I hope you got your ears on this morning. Today we're dealing with the uncomfortable areas of adultery and divorce. They're in Matthew 5:27, at least that's where they start. And as with all such teachings, we approach them with grace and truth. You know, grace without truth is kind of empty. It doesn't really have any meaning. But truth without grace usually becomes harsh and legalistic and damaging. And uh, we need a heavy helping of both, right? Amen. Today we're looking at these sections of adultery and divorce together because they belong together in this teaching. Uh, in this case, they're kind of shades on the same subject. One leads to the other. When adultery takes place without extraordinary grace and love and forgiveness, there is usually the death of a marriage. I'd encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. And uh, I'm going to read the two parts together. Um, about the two topics, and then we'll look at them individually as we get there. We're in Matthew 5, 27 through 32. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is adultery? 
You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. You know the word adultery in the New Testament literally means marriage breaker. That's a, a literal definition, marriage breaker. And it has to do with breaking or violating your marriage covenant. Marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And marriage, um, it, it's, it's meant to be this very special protected covenant. Adultery is sex between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. And you know, under Mosaic law, if you go back to the Old Testament, it was a criminal offense and was even punishable by death. And even in Jesus' day, one could be stoned for committing adultery. So you know the story in, in John where it talks about the woman caught in adultery. That's what that's all about. That's what's going on there. This passage is primarily addressed to married people, but not only to married people, because a single person can be involved in adultery with somebody who is married, obviously. When Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery, what is he quoting? Ten Commandments. He's quoting the Seventh Commandment. Last week we talked about murder, and of course Jesus quoted the Sixth Commandment when talking about murder. Why is he talking, why is he harping back to the commandments? Why is he pointing back there? Well, because they were the standard by which you measured yourself. Uh, when Jesus meets the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, the young man asks, uh, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says to him, first, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Well, he says, I've done that. I've done it all my life. So what's next? And Jesus then really surprises him because he makes him go beyond the commandments that are written. He says, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Standard answer again was to follow the Ten Commandments. Jesus isn't saying that's wrong. He's just saying it doesn't go far enough. Jesus asks more of the rich young ruler. He asks him to, to sell his possessions, to give up his money. And, and what he's really asking this young man about is his heart. Where's your heart? Do you really love me? Can you give up all this stuff for me? So when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, just like he did on the subject of murder, he starts with this words, and I, said, and I think I told you last week, we, we see him say this six times in this section. You have heard it said, pointing back to the Old Testament, pointing back particularly to the law. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You know, breaking that bond of marriage is a very serious thing. Um, we'll talk about that breaking of that bond in a moment, but, but Jesus says it is not enough to just follow the letter of the law, to follow the rules. Not committing adultery, lots of people are not committing adultery. He says, though, I want your heart to. I don't, don't, don't just want your actions, I don't want your legalistic following of a rule, I want your heart. Jesus isn't only interested in our legalistic actions, what we're doing. He is interested in our hearts, for sure. He says, 
You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I looked this passage up in Greek because I wanted to see you know, what exactly it says. And one of the things that really surprised me, I was struck by how intentional it is. Um, lusting after someone else is not accidental. It is intentional in the same way that adultery itself is intentional. Let me show you. So here's a verse that's translated directly from Greek into English so that you can see what it really says. Everyone looking upon a woman in order to lust after her already has committed adultery with her in the heart of him. It's, it's a little wonky because this is Greek transliterated directly into English. Now, you see how intentional this is? It's about looking for the purpose of lusting. It's a very intentional act. It's not something accidental. Looking in order to lust. Now, we're not talking about a casual glance here. This isn't something that just sort of happens in passing or happens accidentally. This is something very intentional. An adulterous look is more than just a casual glance. It involves a decision. Sometimes that's unconscious, but conscious or unconscious, there's a decision involved to pursue the person you desire, even if it's only in your mind. If it's unconscious, it's because it's become a habit in your life, and you're not even aware of doing it. But most of the time, I think we know when we are consciously desiring, consciously uh, lusting after someone in a sexual way. <clears throat> and I can tell you something, I think you're in trouble when you find yourself in the areas of I want or I wish I had that person in a sexual way. You know, at that point, you're not heading for lust, you're already there. You're already in it. You know, sometimes <clears throat> we get inappropriate thoughts will just kind of randomly hit us, you know, and, and we wonder, well... Man, should I feel guilty about that, or is there a problem with that? When those random thoughts come your way, you haven't yet gotten into the edge of sin. You're not there yet. It's not that random thought. It's what you do with that random thought. Where does it go? That can lead to sin. Jesus says, you know, the letter of the law isn't enough in this area. It's the heart of the law that I'm after. Why did God writes such a law in the first place. I mean, he didn't write it for no reason. When you're looking at a passage of Scripture, how do you approach it? Uh, let me suggest a couple of ways or a couple of questions you can ask when you're looking at a Scripture like this. First of all, what is God telling me in this passage? And what are the consequences of the behavior that's addressed? You know, sometimes that's good consequences. And other times it's not so good consequences. And what is God telling me about how to follow him and how to treat others? You know, we are people. We are not pieces of meat. We are not just a body to have sex with. We are persons, and we are to be respected as such and not objectified. Again, it's not just about noticing that person. It's, it's choosing to linger there, to kind of drink them in, having a little Vegas vacation in your mind instead of looking away. 
You know the old saying, what happens in Vegas, Jesus already knows about? <laughs> but God made us better than that. The more we know God, the more self-control we are able to exert. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that God produces that in you as you grow in him and as you mature in him. Well, how seriously does Jesus take all this stuff anyway? Well, the next section says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to, for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. I'd say that's serious. That's really serious. Jesus is saying it's so serious that if your eye does offensive things or your hand does offensive things that you should pluck the eye out or cut off the hand. Now, I want you to get this straight this morning. This is a figure of speech we call hyperbola. I don't want to hear this week about some of you going to the hospital and, and coming to church next week handless. You know, that's, that's not what this is about. Jesus is using gross exaggeration here for the purpose of driving home a point. It doesn't literally mean for you to go home and pluck out your eye. He's telling you to be serious about it, to take it really seriously. Now, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room when we start talking about, you know, adultery in the mind or adultery in the heart. Adultery in the mind can lead to the real thing, right? Jesus says that entertaining it in your mind, it's, it's as if you've already done it. Now, don't go using that as an excuse saying, well, since I've already done it in the mind, I may as well just go ahead and do it. That's not following Jesus. That's not how this relationship with God works. Jesus says, entertaining it in your mind is as if you've already done it. And like murderous thoughts, you need to take care of it now. The path to sin starts in the mind. And then it corrupts the spirit. And then it leads from there to action, to the body. You know, if we think it long enough, it crosses over into action very, very frequently. In the passage Jesus sets up here, it, it's a progression. You know, he's talking about adulterous lust that can lead to real adultery, and then adultery, well, guess what? It can lead to divorce. Adultery, as we said in the beginning, is literally the marriage breaker. It breaks the bond of marriage. It is very destructive. Proverbs 6.32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So not only does it hurt the other people involved, it is very self-destructive and destructive in our relationship with God. It interferes with it in many different ways. Jesus moves sort of seamlessly here into this subject of divorce. Jesus, it's connected. He connects the two ideas, adultery and divorce, together. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. 
And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. One of my professors at college, who was a great New Testament scholar uh, in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, uh, Ray Dietz, he, he said that in this passage, the, the tone of it and the wording of it is such that the last line that says, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, uh, it, he says the real thrust of it is, is that it's anyone who marries a woman divorced in this way commits adultery. And we'll explain that a little more here. Uh, we are obviously not going to get to cover everything the scripture talks about when it talks about divorce. Um, we have just a short time left, and by golly, there are 21 verses I found in my research that deal with this subject. So we're just not going to get through all that stuff. But just let me say that divorce is always spoken of in scripture in the negative. It is never encouraged. It is always discouraged, except in very limited circumstance. So verse 31 says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Well, it says it this way, especially addressing the male, because at this time in Judaism, a woman did not have the right of divorce. They could not initiate divorce proceedings. A husband, all he had to do when he wanted a divorce was get what they called a get. That's the Hebrew word for, for this certificate of divorce, a get, G-E-T. But you know, rabbinical courts could force a husband to divorce on behalf of the wife when certain circumstances took place, including adultery, or when the husband refuses to have marital relations, or when he does not provide adequately for her support. Oddly enough, if he has leprosy, and the last term was if he were a wife beater. By the way, I uh, believe wholeheartedly in this last one. I believe that when a husband becomes physically abusive, he's acting in an adulterous fashion and breaking the bond of marriage. Um, if you want to read about marriage bond, there's some excellent resources. One of our favorites is uh, Dr. Donald Joy, who was a professor at Asbury Seminary. He did an extensive study on the bond of marriage. And if you're interested in reading about it, his book is called Bonding, Relationships in the Image of God. I really encourage you to dig into it. It's really well done. In Jesus' day in Israel, there was this huge debate going on. And Jesus is very aware of this debate. It was a debate about the grounds of divorce. It was based on Deuteronomy 24, starting at verse 1. And two famous rabbis were at opposite ends of the argument. You had a rabbi named Shimei who said, a man may not divorce his wife unless he is found unchastity in her. Rabbi Hillel said that you could divorce a woman if she just ruined supper. So, obviously, there were some who looked for the loophole. Uh, if you burnt the toast, you're gone. You know, it became very, very simple. A lot of women ended up treated very unfairly and were sincerely disadvantaged by divorce. And uh, some were abandoned by their husbands who went on to marry someone else and be quite happy. And, and it's, Jesus is aware of this. 
He addresses this a little later on in another discussion on the same subject. And it's one of the reasons Jesus and then later Paul is so hard on divorce is because it was so often abused in this society. And not only that, in the, in the Roman culture around them, they had all kinds of opportunity for divorce. And the, one of the big problems in that day around marriage was what they called serial monogamy. <laughs> they would get married and be with that person for a while, and then they would divorce that person. Then they would get married and be with that person for a while, and then they would divorce that person. And it was not unusual for a man or a woman to have multiple husbands or wives over a period of time. Well, all this begins to influence us, our culture around us. It influences us, and it begins to pressure us in certain directions. Well, Jesus is here siding with the conservative bunch. He's saying the only exception for divorce is adultery, that a husband who divorces his wife illegitimately is still really married to that woman. And so if she goes to remarry without having been properly divorced, she's committing adultery. That's the situation here. So it's a little technical, but that's the thing. The victim of adultery is what he makes her, it says here in the text. And incidentally, he's guilty too because the whole thing was his fault. Now, Jesus does not alter, offer an, a lengthy solution for adultery or a lengthy solution for divorce because I think the solution is pretty obvious. The thrust is, don't do it. Don't do it. That's the thrust. Don't go there. Now, that's easier said than done when we live in a society that encourages divorce more than it encourages marriage, isn't it? So what about those, and, and I know some of you have been through this experience of divorce. What about, what about if you've been through this experience? Is divorce the unforgivable sin? I mean, we sometimes behave like that, right? It's okay if you're a murderer, we'll forgive you, but if you're divorced, we're just going to look the other way. We're not going to deal with you. The church has some funny ways of doing things, don't they? Where does God's grace come into that? Where does his grace apply? If you've been through the experience of divorce, you know that it's a tragedy, and you know how painful it is. You know, when God puts us together, he bonds us. Talks about it in Genesis 2, we become one flesh. You know, when I perform a marriage, I don't do anything other than perform the ceremony. It's God who does the joining together. Uh, I sometimes tell couples when I'm doing premarital counseling, that's God's glue. Doesn't come apart easily, not without a lot of tearing. Can you be forgiven? Let me ask you, is there anything that God can't forgive? Anything. We can get into the whole discussion on the unforgivable sin, but we all know it has nothing to do with this. The real unforgivable sin ultimately is the rejection of Jesus. Otherwise, God offers lots of grace and love and forgiveness to anyone who comes to him. Amen? So to summarize, adultery of the heart could lead to the real thing. Adultery in marriage is most often a marriage breaker unless a lot of healing 
and forgiveness takes place. As we close, I want to pray for God's strength and healing. I want to pray for power in our marriages, for God to clean our minds in terms of this, this sort of intentional adultery and to have the power for resisting temptation, adultery of the heart, and also for healing wherever healing is needed. So would you pray with me as we finish up? Father God, in the beginning you created us. Male and female, you created us. And in that original two became one flesh. They were married for life. And for those who are called to marriage, you've joined us as one flesh. In your commandment, you told us, you shall not commit adultery. And through Jesus, you've called us to go beyond the letter of the law and that simple commandment. Please give us the strength to resist temptation, to reject sexual relationships with others beyond our marriage covenants, to get rid of our wrong desires so that we can follow you more closely and bring honor to one another. Strengthen, we pray, our marriage covenants. Where we are struggling, bring a heart of forgiveness and of healing. Where marriages died, bring life to survivors. Bring healing to those who've been through the pain of divorce. Bring your love and your forgiveness to bear. Restore us and pour out your love on us. Please have mercy on us because we are all sinners saved by faith and by your grace. We put our faith in you and by your grace we follow your path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.